This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. Today we have a special panel on the challenges of chairing a sociology department, particularly during the COVID crisis. The panel was organized by our presider for today, Jonathan Wynn from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and includes Yasmin Besson-Casino from Montclair State University and Kim Whedon from the Cornell Sociology Department. The challenges of chairing coming up. Hi, I'm John Wynn, Associate Professor and Department Chair at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. It was apparent back in December when I was going to be chair of the department. I felt a mixture of excitement, humility, and terror. I wasn't sure if I would ever be chair, and I didn't think it would happen while I was still an associate professor. I'm part of a large and diverse department with a lot of intersecting personalities between faculty, staff, and students. And my major concerns heading into the role were over supporting our members and improving the departmental climate. Since then, however, the Black Lives Matter movement has made pointed and entirely appropriate demands on programming and hiring in higher education, and the unfurling COVID debacle has added intense budgetary pressures on every academic department across the country. The role of chair seems, with all these interconnected issues, to be an even more daunting task as we are caught between intense administrative demands and a concerned and overworked group of faculty, staff, and students, all experiencing their own pandemic experiences and pointed in highly unequal ways. Being chair can be very lonely. You temporarily become a leader to your friends and colleagues, tough decisions land on your desk, and there are issues that, due to confidentiality reasons, you just can't disclose to the people you once held as close confidants. One of my colleagues suggested that I detail all the responsibilities of chair so colleagues can appreciate everything the job entails, and I often chuckle at this notion because the job is so immense. It's only been a month and a half, but my requests have ranged from fixing the toilet seats in the bathroom to writing a letter to a senator about somebody's visa applications. The experience so far feels like being pecked to death by ducks. To help prepare myself, I proposed a social annex podcast uh, to impresario Joseph Cohen uh, so I could host a roundtable discussion on being chair of Associated Algae Department. My hope is that listeners who are starting in the role or will soon might learn something valuable about what it's like to be chair. But more widely, I hope the faculty and grad students will also learn what the job entails. I'm pleased the first two people that I invited um, agreed to participate in the conversation. I'll have them introduce themselves in alphabetic order, and then I'll ask questions first to one participant, then to the other, and everyone can chime in whenever they like. Okay, I'll start. Um, I'm Yasemin Besan-Casino. I'm a full professor of sociology, and I'm chair of the sociology department at uh, Montclair State University. Um, Currently, we have nine full-time faculty, and we have approximately 200 majors, maybe 100 minors, and a relatively new uh, graduate program of uh, social research and analysis, and we have approximately 50 students there. Uh, MSU is a very large state school. Uh, It used to be a teaching school and transitioned kind of into a research school, so we have a lot of faculty active in research and grants, but we also have a tradition of um, smaller classes and teaching as well. It's also a very diverse student body and mostly first-generation students, and um, and it's a Hispanic-serving institution. Wonderful. Uh, so I'm Kim Whedon. I'm actually not currently a chair. Um, I uh, was replaced as the chair of the sociology department at Cornell um, as of uh, June 30th at 11.59 p.m. Not that I was looking forward to that <laughs> at all. Um, I did actually serve a total of eight and a half years as chair Uh, three and a half years um, as an associate professor, and then I had a break, um, and then I served another five-year term most recently 
Um, I have the dubious distinction of causing two financial crises. It must be causal because I was chair both times it happened. Um, so the first time I was chair for just a year before the financial crisis hit. And then uh, this time around, I've managed to sort of end my term by causing another financial crisis. Um, I also direct the Center for the Study of Inequality, which is sort of within the sociality department at Cornell. Um, and I've had a couple of other administrative roles, including directing a, a provost level Center for the Social Sciences. Um, the sociology department at Cornell um, is uh, a structurally a pretty interesting place. Um, so we have approximately 14 full-time faculty within the Department of Sociology, um, about 80 majors and actually growing. So we've increased our majors over the last um, 10 years or so. Uh, the Center for the Study of Inequality also has a 450 student undergraduate minor. Um, so we have lots and lots of students uh, relative to, to, I think, most Ivy League institutions. What makes Cornell challenging um, and also entertaining and interesting sometimes um, is that uh, Cornell as an institution is a mix of both public and private. So it is a land grant university that's part of the SUNY system, uh, but it's also kind of the Cornell uh, endowed Ivy League college that, that people often think about as well. What this means more locally is that in addition to the sociologists in the sociology department, um, there are eight or nine sociologists in the Department of Policy Analysis and Management that in any normal institution would be in the sociology department. And in fact, we're kind of merging um, as of the end of next year. Um, there's also a Department of Development Sociology, formerly known as Development Sociology. It's now um, morphed into a couple of different things that also has sociologists on campus. So the general issue of Cornell and, and the graduate um, program is actually run through the field of sociology, which includes all these folks, not just the people within the Department of Sociology. So it's a little bit of, a, of an interesting and sometimes challenging organizational structure. Um, it does touch on the chair's job because there's a little bit more coordination um, across colleges. And sometimes uh, that leads to some interesting challenges because the grad student funding is different across colleges and the staff benefits are different across colleges. Um, and the way that things are done are just different a little bit across colleges, even though it's uh, supposedly one university. Um, so I'll stop there and, and I'm sure that this will come up again when we talk about um, some of the joys of being chair. <laughs> um, and as I introduce myself, my name is Jonathan Wynn. Uh, the University of Massachusetts Amherst is a large land grant, R1 public university. Uh, we've got about 400 majors, a bunch more minors. Uh, we have a few certificate programs uh, we have that where students are interested in social work and the criminal justice and criminology uh, system. And that attracts a lot of the students that are interested in our program. At the undergraduate level, uh, there's something of a a mismatch between them and the, and the skills of uh, faculty uh, who, who don't necessarily part participate in those fields of study. We've got about 30 faculty. And then we also have about 50 active graduate students. We also house the Labor Center, which is a very, very active uh, research and, and community-based kind of uh, community-oriented organ in our department. And that is something we're really proud of. So um, with all that introductions, I suppose I could ask a few questions. And the first one would be to Yasmin. And it's just kind of a, a general one when you're, when you're bumping into people at, at ASA or 
if you get an email of congratulations, or as I insist, congratulations on being chair, usually you get a, a line or two of advice. And the advice that I've gotten so far has included things like uh, shield the faculty from administrative oversight, uh, take on no more than one big project per year, find ways to distribute disappointment equally. So I was wondering if you, either if you had your own kind of soundbite advice for new chairs or maybe more broadly, you know, kind of what do you wish that you knew when you stepped into the into the chair? What, what email did you wish you got <laughs> on your way? Somebody like uh, emailed me and said, protect your time. And I, maybe I was, in, you know, uh, it reminded me of like the Wu-Tang Clan, protect your neck, but it's totally uh, in that vein that I think the biggest shift, almost like the day I took over as chair was that relationship with time. That I think one thing I really enjoyed being a regular faculty member was just closing my door and working on something or having a full thought or having just a research day or writing day. And, and, and I know this is a big luxury and, um, you know, late stage capitalism, but it felt like this was, I had some control over my time before that. And almost overnight I lost that. So I wish somebody told me to have, you know, more control over my time. I think the day I took over as chair, I don't remember how many emails I had in my inbox that day, but I think I was bombarded with emails from, from students, from adjuncts, from faculty, and even parents. And all of them probably had like a, a subject that said super, super, super urgent. And, and it seemed like it was crisis mode all the time. And I think the important part is to create a sense of a different relationship with time. And it, and it shouldn't be a series of, you know, putting out wildfires. But what are my goals as chair? What do I want to accomplish so that, you know, day after day is not just, <laughs> it's not determined by somebody else's crisis. So that's what I wish I knew. I had a similar uh, experience of a, of a very changed relationship with time. Um, you know, you get all this advice about, you know, set aside a block a day when you don't accept email. Well, that's easier said than done, right? Um, and sometimes those urgent messages actually are urgent. Most of the time they aren't, Absolutely. but sometimes they are actually urgent. Uh, but I think for me, uh, what was a little bit of a change was that very immediate change in the relationship with your colleagues, uh, right? So you are uh, alternatively the most hated person or the most loved person, um, depending on you know what your job is that particular day. Um, but it's also just a simply a different relationship. For example, um, the first time that I had to do, uh, think about raises and performance evaluations, um, it's not my favorite part of the job. Um, and part of it is that I don't really wanna know what my colleagues make. Um, at some level, it, I don't really feel like it's my business what my colleagues make. Um, I mean, the good news is that <laughs> at least before I caused the first financial crisis, um, there was some room for me to be able to uh, do some uh, equity readjustment, as I put it, um, and sort of that's one of the goals that I set as chair. And I think that, you know, I don't know if that helped the relationship with the colleagues or not, but um, that's certainly part of part of the job. Um, but that you have to, um, I think, learn to take pleasure in your colleagues' successes. Um, and we hope that we always do that, right? That we're always supportive colleagues, but it just changes a little bit as chair partly because you have more skin in the game in the sense that you're the one who is writing letters of support for this or that fellowship or this or that teaching award within the, the college and university. Um, so I think that, you know, you have to start to think about your colleagues 
um, in in a slightly different way, and also that your job has shifted more to supporting them um, as to being simply an equal among them. Um, and that's you know that's a transition. That's something that's quite different from especially I think as an associate professor, uh, I did that as well. I was advised not to be uh, the chair as an associate professor, and of course I ignored advice because I've been doing that all my life. Um, from various well-meaning people. Um, but I think in retrospect, they were right. It's very difficult, I think, to have a relationship as chair when you're an associate professor and there are full professors in the department who are you know, eventually going to be evaluating you. It really does change your relationship with people, though. It's, it's very, and, and the perception of the job is very different. I thought chairs would have more power or more of a budget. And it's, and it's shocking, like how you're on the other side, you see that you have no budget or no authority or anything like that. So the perception is very different. But overnight, you make a lot of friends, you have all these like new chair friends now that you know, that I used to have coffee with when the campus was open and, and commiserate with. And I think that that group was that that's important to have that uh, support support system. Yeah, we have a well, for being being at a public institution, all of our uh, salaries are public information. So we, that we, we, do, we avoid that, uh, that one discomfort, I suppose at UMass. Um, we also have a very strong union at, at UMass, which means that equity is a, something that is kind of not beholden to the department necessarily, right? So we have we have other kind of um, leverage that we can use as, as individual faculty, and that chairs aren't kind of burdened with that responsibility, which I think is is probably pretty huge. Um, but there's but you you there's no chair there's no chairs union at at UMass, and so I've felt that kind of like I. I I elevated to a certain level where I was no longer in that kind of protection and I felt very isolated. But Yasmin, I think you're right. I, all of a sudden I did have these friends who also were at the same level and um, just getting together and talking about what the, especially in this moment of the crisis, uh, a budget crisis, um, being able to talk with other chairs about when the Dean asks us for money and what, you know, if you had to cut 5%, where would it come from? And having the chairs all talk before that conversation has been um, super helpful for me. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's really important to have that support, the support group. Just a kind of a funny story, maybe it's not funny, I don't know. Maybe my colleagues don't think it's funny um, about the being chair during financial crises is that in some level, it's almost, easier um, because, for example, I didn't have to determine raises this spring because there are no raises. Um, I didn't have to determine raises in whatever it was 2010 because there were no raises. Um, and when there's absolutely no discretion whatsoever, um, all, of, all of a sudden some of those very difficult decisions or conversations that you have to have just kind of go away. I mean, maybe I'm really searching for a silver lining here out of, out of what's gonna be a really hard period in higher education at, at all type, different types of institutions. Um, but I think that that is one of the, you know, this, this idea of uh, finding ways to distribute disappointment equally. Well, sometimes the budgets are such that everybody is equally disappointed. <laughs> sometimes they're such that everybody's equally happy. And of course, that's a much better situation to be in. You and it's not on it's not on you. It's it's the that's right. It's the wider environment. Um, uh, not the not, hopefully not the first Wu Tang reference that we'll go through. But thank you, Yasmin, for kind of breaking that seal and allowing us now to to use use Wu Tang references more freely. Um, I, I think I, that should be a thing in sociology, <laughs> but yeah. 
Mandatory. Mandatory. <laughs> I, my colleague Winona Ryman Richmond and I have a West Coast versus East Coast argument all the time. So I'm, I appreciate your contribution to the East Coast side. I'm actually um, fond of Spinal Tap. <laughs> this one goes to 11 is appropriate for a lot of situations actually as chair. In the yeah, I think we're definitely always at 11. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Let's do, let's do that. Let's have uh, just an ongoing set of references that we can, we can use as a kind of study guide for this podcast <laughs> to, for those who are listening. Um, all right. So my next question was about uh, changing the climate. So I definitely was interested in this about how, a department can kind of change its ways a little bit. Um, I suppose particularly when it comes to pressures from grad students and colleagues and the wider public to um, kind of address concerns from Black Lives Matter and, and, and to think about how we as a department or at, particularly for us at a primarily white institution um, to kind of change our ways a little bit. And I read a bunch of stuff that said, you know, it's hard to change people's minds in a department or in, a, in an organization, I should say. And I, uh, I think, as, as I mentioned uh, in the green room, we were talking that we are hiring three new faculty in our department. And I think that that's one of the ways that we can really change our department climate is, is through hiring. Uh, these are three, uh, you know, kind of new colleagues, new voices that we all kind of want to protect in some way. And um, I'm really kind of I'm using that as an opportunity as chair to to tell our my colleagues, hey, we've got to we have to do right by these new these new colleagues who are starting their careers here. And so, I, but that's only one kind of strategy, I suppose. I don't mean to be kind of pessimistic about it, saying it's the only way that you can change a climate. Maybe it might be the best way to change a departmental climate or departmental culture. Um, but I was wondering if either of you had heard of anything or had any strategies of your own to think about how to kind of address culture. And just to make this things a little bit more difficult, all these strategies we had, now we have to adapt to not being on campus. <laughs> sort of how yes. do you create a virtual culture yes. and change the culture and potentially the structure, you know, from your uh, living room. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think there are different, uh, certainly cohort replacement is one of the, um, more effective tools that we have. Um, but obviously when there are hiring freezes um, in, in very small departments, you're typically not hiring uh, very many at a time. This last year, we were fortunate to have a new endowed chairship um, at the junior level actually, and a, an, and a junior search. So we were able to hire two, but that's very, I think that's the only time, or maybe the second time in, in however many years, 20 years that I've been at Cornell where we've been able to hire even two at once. Um, and obviously that's a pretty slow process. I mean, I think there are some other things that we can do. Um, one of the things that I'm proud of in my last term as chair is, is um, changing the culture around teaching um, in the department. Um, and this was, this was facilitated by a grant, um, an internal grant from uh, the college but really trying to um, implement active learning, uh, which is you know, a little bit of a buzzword, but it's just sort of a, a, a new style of, of pedagogy within the classroom. But one of the things that we were able to do with this was to basically implement um, far better training for virtually every TA, every graduate student um, than, than we'd had before. And before it was a little bit of a catch-all and the motivated students went and talked to our Center for Teaching and Learning um, and the other students to sort of let it go by the wayside. This was actually kind of a, a, a concerted effort to change the climate around teaching. 
Um, now that's on a specific task. It's not, it's maybe arguably much easier than it is around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion to change a culture around teaching. Um, but I think that there are ways to be able to do that if there's sort of a, a fairly universal commitment within the department that this is important. Um, and you can, you know, can try and have um, possibly some difficult conversations about, you know, why is this important and what can we do, even given the fact that we don't, we don't have any hires coming up and we won't perhaps in the, in the very near future. Um, but, you know, if, to a sociologist, it's no surprise that changing culture is a lot harder than changing organizational structure, right? Uh, one you can do with the stroke of a pen and some money. Um, the other is much, is, is obviously much more difficult. Yeah, I mean, we were fortunate enough to hire too, but I think it's better when you can hire in cohorts and we all get to know each other and we create a culture, but it must be hard to get into an existing department. And, you know, it's it's hard to see it from their perspective. I, I think in the past year before COVID, I try to have a lot of departmental events that were different and, you know, experiential learning experiences. And it was a little more exciting for the existing faculty as well, something out of everybody's comfort zone something everybody, you know, all of us are interested in. And we had like sociology movie nights where we watched a movie we wanted to watch and talk about it. And I think we were trying to get more undergraduates with it, involve the grad students with it. But I think slowly, like this is starting a, you know, tiny shift in culture, but, and of course, after that COVID hit and <laughs> we had to reassess everything. I, I do think in speaking of sil silver linings, I suppose, uh, in some ways, this is a, a disruption. And so I think any kind of, it's a pause on some of the engagements that colleagues had with each other, and grad students and colleagues and faculty had with each other. Um, so maybe this is a good moment to kind of take stock and think of um, of how we treat each other in, in, in every department, not just not, not my department necessarily, but just in general. But so like we were talking a little bit about kind of catchphrases mm. um, and the idea of how you how you change a department climate. Um, these weren't necessarily told to me, but I've heard them over my career. Um, and one of them is kill them with kindness. Right. So, uh, you know, yes, perhaps your department culture is a little bit difficult or they're prickly personalities. Kill them with kindness. Um, I've, I've heard that as a as a strategy for success. Um, but I've ironically heard exactly the opposite. And they, a very famous and now deceased um, sociologist who took over as chair at a very famous and still existing sociology department, not Cornell, but I won't name what it is, uh, basically had the philosophy that conflict requires interaction. So if your faculty never interact with each other, they can't come in conflict with each other. I mean, this is like, you know, straight out of Lewis Coser, right? Yeah. Um, but it's sort of, you think about it, that's one strategy, but it's the complete opposite strategy from kill them with kindness. Um, and it would be interesting to know, you know, you kind of want to do a randomized control trial to see, see which actually works. Not that that's well, I think I, I said we had to do like a department vision talk before I became chair. And that was one of the things that I said is that, is that if, if somebody's upset and somebody voices it, that that's actually, that means that they're still engaged and that they care enough to say something about the department and wanting to change it. So I don't, I don't, you know, I think that, I think Howie Becker would also kind of agree with that as far as it's a form of interaction. That's it. And is, and is how do you differentiate yourself from Bourdieu conversations? He says something. That's much better than being disengaged. I think if you stay in a department for so long after a while, right. <laughs> you'd still want to change things. 
Yeah, I hope so. When I um, I was thinking about uh, the third question here for Kim. Uh, when I took my role as the department's undergrad program director, I was told historically that the role was a kind of domestic labor for the department. Um, and that was said with kind of lots of winks and nods and all the intended meanings that domestic labor should have for a sociologist to understand. Um, as I was doing all of the ASA um, you know, kind of uh, leadership trainings and workshops, it was it was a heavily, uh, heavily female-dominated um, space. And I think historically that has not necessarily been the case. And so I, I got me thinking about this particular question of you know, what do we think about the gender dynamics when it comes to um, chairdom in sociology? Yeah, uh, so I guess I have the, either the blessing or the curse of, of uh, quite a number of years of chairs now spanning over a decade. Um, I mean, I can definitely say that the job has become much more um, bureaucratic, routine, paperwork type things. Um, part of this is tied to general shifts in higher education um, and sort of the more uh, corporate, if you will, orientation of, of um, higher educational institutions. Some of it is actually pressure from outside, right? There's just more compliance things that that universities have to deal with than they did 15 years ago. And that um, chairs are pretty much protected from that, but not entirely, right? So there are some things that um, the department has to do, just to give you a concrete example, of, you know, making sure that all of our syllabi explicitly state the learning goals. 15 years ago, people didn't explicitly state the learning goals on their syllabi, and there was certainly nobody checking to make sure that they did it. Um, I mean, you might say that it's actually a good thing that we explicitly state our learning goals. Um, I'm not, you know, kind of coming down one side or the other, but this is sort of the type of bureaucratic thing that's, that's definitely changed. Um, and I think that with that, um, there's a little bit more of a quote unquote housekeeping aspect to uh, the role. I also think that there is a little bit less power than there used to be, um, partly because of budgets. Um, and every university has a little bit of a, I mean, even within Cornell, there are differences across departments in how much of their budget they actually control. Um, in sociology, we control very little of it. Um, I mean, it's essentially, you know, salary costs um, and a little bit of money to keep the copy machine going um, and have a few events a year. But beyond that, we have to ask the dean for pretty much everything. But it seems like the role of chair has become less powerful in the sense that you, know, you don't hear about a chair having a vision for who they want to hire and then bringing in those people into the department anymore. Um, again, I think that you know, there are certainly problems with that model. It, it tends to reproduce networks that we all know. I mean, the network reproduction happens anyway, um, but it's certainly a much more exclusive way of doing hiring. Uh, but I think that as some of that power, um, overt expressions of power within the chair's role have diminished, um, it has become a little bit less of an attractive job. Um, and certainly in a winner-take-all market of sociology, when the job market is good, um, the amount of compensation that you get for being chair is nowhere near the amount of compensation that you get for just doing a lot of research and getting an outside offer, right? Um, so I think that the you know the, alongside with the gendering of the role has been a little bit less autonomy within the role, um, and a little bit sort of a more of a more of a career cost to the role than there used to be. Um, which came first? I don't know. Right? It's that standard problem of is it the feminization um, of the role or is it the 
kind of the declining pay and prestige and, and autonomy of the role that then causes uh, men to leave it and women to be more likely to accept it. I don't know the answer to that, um, but I do see uh, kind of certain parallels uh, within the chair's role to all that stuff that <laughs> we all know, all know and love from uh, taking or teaching gender sociology. <laughs> well, I mean, service in general is so gendered that, you know, before taking over as the department chair, I think uh, there was a point when I was first promoted to full professor and and I remember being on every imaginable committee and I don't know how it happened that all of a sudden there were new committees, new committees exclusively for like, you know, more mid-career people and and that was so much a service that was unacknowledged. So at least like by being chair, it is an acknowledged sort of, I mean, not enough acknowledged, but it, it's a position, it's a service and it is, a little bit visible. Yeah, that's right. That's a, that's a that's a really interesting thing about right that it becomes it is the more visible part of the service that women tend to do in, in most departments, at least with graduate programs, probably undergraduate programs too. But there's actually a lot of research on that with women doing uh, more mentoring, women doing more uh, service, especially with undergraduates and especially in institutions like ours. Yeah, ours as well. I believe, and I would be hard pressed to come up with a site for this, but I believe it's true that um, men tend to do more reviewing of papers, um, which you also think of as a service, right? It is a service to the discipline. And I think it's kind of a question about the extent to which that's a self-interested service or whether being chair is a self-interested service. I mean, at some level, there are, there are perks to all of these different things that you do. Um, but anyway, I mean, I, I do think it's there's certainly locally you can look around and you can see who's doing a lot of the kind of the institution building service within a university. Um, but there's also this institution building within the profession. Um, and I don't know how that comes out. Um, I mean, they might think it's a pretty interesting question. Um, Kim, you, you said uh, that, that your department, you felt like you didn't have much control over uh, the budget. And so I guess it maybe maybe this is a little bit different when I was, that got me thinking about my own position in where my dean is asking, you know, kind of broadly, where would you cut 5%? And then um, coming back and saying, how about another another 5% where you get that cut? And, you know, what would you make, work with us and try and figure out where we can make cuts if indeed we have to make cuts in the kind of COVID moment. And, and certainly now we have to I, I, we don't have students on campus. We have about a thousand students on campus in, in total, which is not that much. Um, and so we, we definitely aren't getting any room and board from a lot of our students and these budget questions will, I imagine, come up. Um, and so I was wondering, you know, kind of, I guess, Yasmin, but, but also Kim, since you've, you've marshaled together two economic crises um, uh, with your power as chair, um, <laughs> I'm curious to know how, how did it land? Or maybe it didn't land that much because you didn't have much control over it as, as chair at Cornell. Uh, Yasmin, do you, do, do you feel like there's this pressure to kind of answer for the, the budget in your- I don't, we're a heavily unionized um, campus. So as a department chair, I don't do any kind of performance review. I mean, other than uh, yearly reappointments of junior faculty or tenure decisions. But that's pretty much it. Any kind of raise has to go through the union. So as a chair, I feel I don't have power at all. Maybe it's about timing, maybe it's about scheduling or classes, but it doesn't usually involve money. And, yeah. and I'm with Kim, we, we get very little uh, photocopy money and a little bit of event money, but that's that's pretty much it. Yeah. 
So I haven't had to make any decisions about that this time yet. Um, you know, I mean, I think the the financial fallout from the COVID nineteen crisis, of course, is not, is not yet entirely clear for anybody. Right. Um, Cornell, I think, lost is it forty nine million dollars in spring and is looking at two hundred ten million dollars or something this this coming academic year, even assuming the students come back. Um, so yes, it's coming. The first time around, um, we were asked, and I can't remember if it was. Uh, it was somewhere between 10 and 15 percent, um, which is a lot for a department where so much of your budget is really faculty salaries. Um, and we essentially had two choices. I mean, you're not going to get there by cutting out your colloquium series, which we ended up doing, or by, you know, not fixing your copy machine. You're just not going get, to get that kind of percentage cuts with that. Um, that we um, you know, had a conversation as a faculty um, and decided that uh, we would basically cut a line um, that was empty. Um, so we essentially just lost, we actually lost two faculty lines and then we got one back. Um, and we only now, uh, you know, 10 years later, basically filled back up to quote unquote full strength um, plus one. Um, so that was the decision. But really the, the only other choice that we had was uh, essentially to have a cohort with no graduate students in it or, or basically have a, a, a no, a zero cohort. Um, which isn't ideal. We have a pretty small grad program to begin with. So when you're talking about five or six students um, in a cohort in a normal year, um, we did have to cut down. I think we had two cohorts of three students each, um, which is very, very small and creates all sorts of downstream consequences, you know, for TAing courses in the future and for um, grad seminars and just, you know, all kinds of downstream consequences. But that was essentially the choice we had. Faculty lines or an entire graduate student cohort. Um, so we chose a little bit of a mix, but mostly weighted toward faculty lines. Yeah, it's not a it's not a pleasant conversation to have, and there's just not you know there's not much there, really, to be able to staffing on the table. Um, it wasn't for us. Yeah, uh, we're pretty leanly staffed to begin with, so there wasn't you know there wasn't a lot there, um, and a lot of the staff are. You know, there's kind of this parallel organizational structure where um, the chair, for example, has input on hiring the department manager um, and hiring the people who work, who report to the department manager. But it's really the college that's doing that hiring. I mean, it, I think sometimes they asked my opinion because they wanted my opinion, but a little bit as a courtesy, <laughs> right? But the actual lines are controlled by the college and not by the, or for the staff are controlled by the um, college and not by the department per se. I'm realizing I have more autonomy than I think I, I do. <laughs> is that a good thing or a bad thing? Bad thing, right, exactly. <laughs> I think it's a terrible thing. I'm now ner more nervous. And as far as pressure from, you know, kind of Black Lives Matter, you have uh, from graduate students, undergraduates, um, having certain expectations as far as programming, classes, um, hiring. Have you felt the similar pressures that we have? Um, pressure means, you know, just kind of getting it, no, you know, kind of value judgment. I, I welcome the pressure, but I'm, I'm wondering if you all have had the opportunity to kind of address those concerns or did COVID pretty much kind of cut those conversations short? Well, it's also a big mismatch between what's happening right now and how slow things happen in academia. Any kind of hiring, any kind of curriculum change, any kind of even like introducing a new class takes so long. Even, you know, as a department we were talking about, oh, we should have a class on Black Lives Matter. For it to be approved is gonna take a year at the earliest. 
So I think that mismatch is, and of course, not having lines is problematic. But I mean, one thing a chair can do is still uh, thinking about a lot of faculty of color is going back to service is they do a lot of invisible labor and mentoring and service. And as a chair, you can actually make that not so invisible and give it credit. So I think that's one part of the job I actually I actually do enjoy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I stepped down as chair and Ben Cornwell, um, who is very able, took over as chair on July 1. Um, and I know he is having um, ongoing conversations with the DGS and with the graduate students about Black Lives Matter and what we can do as a department. Um, we do, we are very well positioned in the sense that we have this very uh, well-developed and currently very well-funded Center for the Study of Inequality um, that uh, is funded by external monies. I was able to get a $10 million grant um, four years ago, I guess, to expand the center. Um, and this very healthy and robust inequality minor um, that you know has kind of put us in a position to be able to uh, offer some courses. We already offer some courses for the for the students. Um, I mean, I think it's where it's more challenging is in hiring a faculty. You know, it's very hard uh, to hire faculty of color um, uh, when you don't have any faculty lines to hire on. Um, and you know, there every department I think in the college is making the argument that there should be um, sort of a special pot of money for hiring, and it should go to their department, right? So, I mean, I, the, the dean's job is in some sense even more difficult than than the chair's job. Um, I mean, I do think that, uh, I and mean, I think these are very healthy conversations. I think they're very necessary conversations. Um, I think sometimes um, I would wish that. Uh, sociologists um, took a little bit more advice from their own disciplines expertise um, in some of these things. And just to be very specific about this, I mean, I've tweeted about it, so in some sense it's public. Um, you know, there are constantly calls for mandatory diversity training of faculty and staff, um, where we know from a lot of work by uh, Dobbin and Caleb and many others that mandatory diversity training is not only often ineffective, but can cause a, cause a backlash. Um, so sometimes I think there's a mismatch between the demands of the students and what we should know as a discipline about how you can actually address these things effectively. Um, and that's a little bit challenging, frankly, to, to navigate. Um, I mean, I think what you don't want to do either as a department or as a college or as a university is get into the business of performative diversity. You know, yes, we're going to mandate that all incoming faculty take a three-hour course on bias training. Well, you know, is that effective or is that performance? Um, and I think that, you know, the question is, based on the research, is it's still very much an empirical question whether that's a good thing to, uh, to mandate or not. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the tensions that um, is kind of built into a lot of these conversations as well about, um, yes, we all want to do better. We should do better. We need to do better. Um, but how you get from point A to point B without getting into this kind of performativity loop is, is a little bit more of a question. Hey, with podcasts, um, I find myself, you know, applying more for um, grants for maybe uh, institutional change like NSF Advance or NSF HSI. So at least like we can we can get the money that way and maybe change the culture and structure like in our institutions through that, because I think otherwise our hands are tied. 
Yasmin, you said you made me think. Uh, we did list a Black Lives Matter class over the summer. You know, I think you're absolutely right that there's places where academia can move very, very slowly, and, and it can be extremely frustrating for graduate students, undergraduate students, and faculty truly who who do want to try and find some change. And and that was one way that we were able to kind of be a little bit more versatile. And um, I, I was glad that we were able to list that as a summer class and, and see what we can do with it and develop it maybe to an online class or not. The other thing is, is that we have uh, the aforementioned um, criminal justice and criminology certificate in UMass. And as a part of that, we had a internship coordinator who was in the criminal justice system and was able to place our undergraduates in uh, positions um, as, a, as internships and then hopefully jobs. So um, it, it, we often get students who are kind of interested in criminal justice and into sociology. Um, and uh, and so I kind of triggered a, a review of that program to see, you know, do we really want somebody who was uh, a sh former sheriff sitting in our department, um, kind of placing some of our undergraduates in the jails and in prisons in and around Western Massachusetts? Or is there another way that we can think about criminology and, the criminal justice system more broadly and place students kind of in other kinds of organizations around the valley um, that isn't so directly tied to reproducing that kind of criminal justice system that we we teach about in our classes but again those there there are those are fast quick changes not slow ones that maybe could last a little bit longer um, as an ethnographer i always try and end any conversation that i have with somebody uh, by saying what am i uh, Know, too naive to even ask about uh, that I don't even know how to kind of fully form the question and that in a in an hour from now you'll walk away and you'll say well John didn't even ask me about this and that's like such a critical part of what it means to be chair and so I ask you what in an hour when you're um, petting your cat or going to a zoom meeting you think to yourself John didn't ask that question and really that's such a critical thing what's the critical thing that I'm missing here well, before COVID times, it was the corridors. I think half the chair's job is in the corridors talking to people. And I, and I miss that. I think like more, more people confided in me in the corridors and when I ran into them that, and I learned more about, you know, junior faculty or grad students or, or undergraduates just in like uh, sociology corridors. So I think that's, that was my big part of chairing. So I think that, uh... <laughs> Some of the little things about being chair are uh, surprisingly difficult until you try them. Um, and one of the things I have in mind is uh, running a meeting, how you actually structure a meeting that gives people an opportunity to say what they want to say, um, but not dominate the conversation. Um, and a meeting that is just the right length, <laughs> um, that you know, doesn't feel rushed to make the decisions that you need to make, but also doesn't feel like it drags on forever. I mean, it's one of these things that I think it's a, it's a little bit of a skill um, and it's something that you can learn how to do. Um, at a former job, I don't need to mention it out loud, but everybody can figure out what it is. Um, I was sort of bemused by watching the chair kind of manage the conversation based on where people were sitting it around the table and then who he would ask first when there was something that he wanted to ask about. Um, so the norm at this department was that you went around the room and I've actually adopted that norm when we're talking about junior candidates that everybody that I, you know, I just go around the room and I make sure that everybody 
um, expresses their opinion about the work and about the, the scholarship in other ways. Um, but he would do it in a way to basically um, start off the conversation with somebody who he thought would have some useful insight um, as opposed to starting off the conversation with somebody who he thought would send us into a pit of negativity. Um, and that's, it was actually, it was remarkably clever um, as just kind of this little technique for running a meeting that I didn't think about, you know, I, until I know Almost like classroom management. <laughs> what was that? It's almost like classroom management, like right. you asked the good students. It really is. And, and, you know, maybe I should admit to my colleagues, if any of them happen to be listening, that they're trying to, to manage the conversation. Um, but just little things like that, that I think that uh, make a difference for how people perceive the department. And, you know, you want that balance between professionalism and a casual, comfortable interaction. Um, and sometimes that balance can be pretty hard to, to hit. Um, particularly when you're not sort of accustomed to that that role. Um, all right. Well, I have a million more questions, and I will ha obviously have a different perspective on this in uh, in the 34 months uh, from now when I give up my chairdom. Um, it's too early to start counting. Start. Oh, not that I'm counting. Of course, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but thank you both, uh, Yasmin Besson-Ficino and Kim Whedon. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. And um, thank you so much. We'll be sure to um, advertise this podcast on on um, to other departments than yours so that they won't know about your tricks and everything. We'll keep it a secret. <laughs> That's a good idea. Everyone at Cornell and Montreal, Claire State, they will, they'll never hear any of this, I'm sure. All right. Thank you both. Thank you. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Thank you to Yasmin Besson Casino and Kim Whedon for being our guests. And a very special thank you to Jonathan Wynn from the University of Massachusetts Amherst for organizing this panel. We're on the web at theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter at Socianix, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. The Annex Sociology Podcast is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.com. Music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of our host, Jonathan Wynn, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thank you.